Welcome to Season 2 of A New Voice of Freedom. The podcasts are taken from four volumes in defense of Christianity, written by Ronald Keith Messer. Podcast 32 is entitled, Where Do Laws Come From? I live in the Great Smoky Mountains, affectionately called the Smokies, whose origins date back a billion years. On our daily ambulations, on narrow winding roads, through dense deciduous forests, Lynn and I listen to the music of waterfalls and swift-moving streams, branches and creeks, the sparkling water cascading over well-worn rocks, smoothed by perhaps millions of years of relentless erosion. It seems that a cascading branch or wide creek follows every road. We see small branches flowing into wider streams, and wider streams flowing into even wider creeks ever flowing towards wider rivers which carry the soft sediment to the sea in an ever-ending cycle. My cousin, Elvin, and I fish the creeks that flow from Martha Sunquist Park where the high waters flow swiftly over huge boulders, splitting into other roaring creeks, some of which eventually lead to Big Creek, which winds around the lush mountains and flows into the great French Broad River. Elvin, a master fly fisherman, is my tutor. Stand downstream, he advises, or the fish will see your shadow. He dips his hand into the shallow water's edge and dips out a handful of small black sticks that run thick along the black bank. He picks through the sticks, selecting four or five, and throws the others back into the water where they are swiftly carried downstream. He hands the remaining sticks to me. They are uniform, one the image of the other in size, shape, texture, and color. Two short, black sticks, about an inch long, glued together. I don't know what to do with the trash, so, trusting Elvin, I hook one of the sticks to my tiny black fly, which Elvin had hand-tied. It's stick bait. Break them open, he says patiently. Inside is the larva of the caddis fly. Place it on your hook. The fish, when they strike the fly, will linger longer. Elvin told me the difference between the caddis fly and the stone fly. He added, I cut fish open and study what they eat. They almost always have something black inside. Elvin's fly was black, his lucky fly. I break the stick open and sure enough, the stick is merely a perfect camouflage, a cocoon to protect the larvae, which live in water, from being eaten before they hatch. Meanwhile, Elvin, aged 70, racked throughout his body with advanced cancer, catches 10 fish while I struggle catching one. We fish between chemotherapy treatments while his energy is still high. Meanwhile, I asked myself, Why do fish tend to swim upstream when it is easier to swim downstream? Why do they always face the current? I don't know the scientific explanation. Perhaps it is as simple as the fact that insects that unhappily land on the water float downstream into the crafty trout's open mouth. But it is more, I think. I have seen whitefish by the thousands migrate upstream in the south fork of the Snake River, trying to swim up a dam. All I had to do was cast in an empty hook and pull out the fighting fish. I have seen shad forming a black ribbon along the water's edge of the French Broad River fight their way up the ramp at Douglas Dam into the containers of fishermen, scooping them up for bait. My grandfather told me the story of Big Creek when once, during the Depression, the people were starving, and suddenly and inexplicably thousands of fish appeared, migrating up Big Creek and its tributaries. The hungry settlers dipped them out with nets. They were sent by the Lord, my grandfather told me. I need Elvin to explain to me how to fish, 
but sadly cancer took him, and we never got to go fishing again. In the immensities of life's mysteries, Elvin's oldest son, heartbroken over his father's illness, unexpectedly died of a heart failure one day prior to his father's death. They were buried side by side on a mountaintop near Elvin's father, who was also taken by a heart attack 30 years earlier. The mountains are filled with silent graves, secreted in the foliage of all-consuming nature, graves marked by wordless stones carved by nature. I need God to explain the necessity of death and the glories of the resurrection. I need Isaac Asimov, the great explainer of the age, to explain to me why fish swim upstream. But I asked a different question. What would happen if the fish preferred to swim downstream? It occurred to me that if fish swam downstream, the high creeks would soon be void of fish, and all the fish would swim to the rivers, from the rivers to the seas, and there would be no fishing except at the center of the sea, where they would all congregate and die. So much depends upon fish swimming upstream. By so doing, fish are distributed evenly throughout our miraculous waterways. For some random reason, I remembered another natural phenomenon. Water expands when it freezes. If ice didn't expand, the ponds would freeze over and all the fish would die. Again, I asked, why does water expand when it freezes? To save the fish? Is it by necessity? Is it by some inexplicable, fortunate accident that it cannot be any other way, and luck has it that fish are saved? It astonishes me that science has adopted just such an explanation with their accidental universe, their Goldilocks zone, and their serendipity of circumstances. Expanding ice isn't always convenient. When ice expands in ponds, it seals off the pond and keeps the lower depths at a higher temperature, which is necessary for the survival of water life. However, when ice expands in the rocks, it sometimes splits the rocks and causes massive rock slides, which are frequent occurrences, in the great slate slabs of the Smoky Mountains, sometimes creating small heaps common to country roads, sometimes stopping traffic and closing roads. Again, I cannot give the scientific explanation. I must leave that to the scientists whose job it is to explain every natural phenomenon. Nature is explainable only because it is predictable and exact. That is why we call them laws of nature. They never vary. The same conditions always produce the same results. To be precise, science really cannot explain nature. Science really cannot explain anything. They can only describe phenomenon and identify the laws of nature based upon the principle of causality. That is not an explanation. That is merely a description, no matter how ingenious. They may describe the behavior of fish, or the behavior of ice, or the behavior of atoms, or the conditions and effects of law. But they don't really explain why laws exist or where laws come from. We know, of course, that the world cannot exist without law, but that's not an explanation. That is an observation. Why must the world exist? Does the world and everything in it exist by necessity? The answer is terribly important. If things exist by necessity, we are mere cogs in a cosmic machine, without purpose, without agency or free will, and without consciousness. Are we, like an elaborate cuckoo clock, merely an amusement for the gods? Science is brilliant at explaining the causal connection among natural laws and the effects upon our environment. But science cannot explain where the laws came from or why they exist in the first place. Science, divorcing science from the individuals who are scientists, is forever nonplussed. 
because science denies the existence of God. Only in Greek drama is there a deus ex machina, which means God from a machine. In Greek drama, when things seemed hopeless, God would come down in a machine and sort things out. We see the technique in all action movies. Against overwhelming odds, the hero suddenly, miraculously emerges and saves the day. Christians, many of whom are scientists, have no such dilemma. They accept unquestionably the scientific method, but personally hold the views that laws were originally organized by intelligent design. Nature has a designer in the same way that buildings, etc., have a designer. The earth requires an architect, just like a skyscraper or bridge requires an architect. The purpose of law, then, is contained in the effect. Laws are necessary because the effect is necessary, and not the other way around. The real difference between science and religion is that scientists focus on the conditions of law, and Christianity focuses on the effects of law. Science answers the question how. Christianity answers the question why. Nature sustains life. Therefore, Christians reason, nature was designed primarily for sustaining life. It follows that since humans are the highest form of life, natural laws were primarily formed to sustain human life. That, of course, would beg the question unless Christians advanced another step forward. We are the children of God and were sent to earth for a purpose. Christianity, with the help of law, attempts to define that purpose. Leaving science to the experts, for me, led to an even greater question. To my surprise, the dilemma of why fish swim upstream revealed the answer to a mystery that has haunted me for many years. As a Christian, I accept as irrefutable the truth that Christ created the earth and everything in the earth, including man. Since I am addressing this book to Christians, I don't have to worry about the burden of proof. It is an act of faith which we as Christians share. The question then is, did natural laws self-exist, and Christ, a great scientist, use those laws for his purposes? Or did he declare his purpose and organize laws from the self-existing properties of matter to fulfill that purpose? In other words, did he tailor laws to create earth to bring about his eternal purposes? As I considered the relatively trivial fact of fish swimming upstream, it occurred to me that purpose came first and creation second that Christ organized laws to create earth in order to exalt man. Fish swimming upstream is a necessary part of the law of creation, but is not the purpose of creation. However, let me add that since God loves all of his creation, it is logical to think that not only does the earth accommodate man, bringing him joy, but that the earth also accommodates all living creatures, bringing them joy in their own element. Man holds the preeminent position because, one, he is made in the image of God, and two, he is the highest form of intelligence. That is why God gave man dominion over the earth and all the creatures of the earth as described in Genesis. To me it came as a great insight, for I had wrestled for a very long time with which came first, the laws of nature or the purposes of God, which I call the chicken and the egg dilemma. In other words, did God discover law and use it for his purposes? Or did he form his purposes and organize laws to bring them about? Obviously, I concluded the latter, placing God as the center of our universe and mankind as his finest creation. Nature follows nature. Each creature takes on the attributes of its parents. 
so it is with men. On earth, we take on the attributes and genetic similarities of our parents. And in a larger sense, we take on the attributes of God himself. And the ultimate goal of man is to become like his creator. It is no accident, I think, that all creations witness of intelligent design, and that intelligent designer is God. Thank you for listening. Watch for our next podcast. In Defense of Christianity is available at RonaldMesser.com.